This is an ABC podcast. Hi, I'm Amanda Vanstone. Welcome back to Counterpoint. It's good to have you with us today. Now, you've heard that trashy culture trashes your brain, haven't you? The brain culture thing is a bit of a chicken and egg thing, really. Plus diversity. It allows us to get a much better, fuller picture of our world. It should never be just tick a box in HR. And the animal kingdom, it's very diverse. Why do we speak of thugs and brutes as being just animals? We're animals ourselves. But first to you, the awesome and astonishing you. Gee, have you been lucky enough lately for someone to say, you're fantastic, I'm amazed, God, you're fabulous. Gee, it's astonishing. Well, if you haven't, you might ask yourself, are you astonished? Are you astonished at your being? I mean, after all, you're here, you're not perhaps born in a third world country, you're here and you're you. And what if your parents hadn't met? Mm, Would you exist? No, but someone else might. So your existence in that way is astonishing. On the other hand, you're just a part of billions of other people. So I haven't thought about this much, but I can assure you that Tim Triplett, an associate professor in philosophy at the College of Liberal Arts, University of New Hampshire, has thought about it. He's the author of Morality's Critics and Defenders, A Philosophical Dialogue, and he joins us now from New Hampshire. Tim Triplett, welcome to CounterPoint. Well, thank you so much for having me. Now, you've got a story about your grandfather doing some business in England and being about to return to the United States. What happened then? He got a call from a Scottish businessman and was told that he could probably increase his sales opportunities if he took a trip up to Scotland. So he decided to do that, and he cancelled his ticket he had for the Titanic. There you go. <laughs> That's not a bad thing, is it? But you now know that if that, in a sense, silly little thing hadn't happened, if the guy hadn't contacted him and said there are more opportunities in Scotland, he wouldn't have cancelled his trip on the Titanic and you wouldn't have come into being. That's right. astonishing, isn't it? And think about all the things that went into that Scottish businessman making that decision, finding out about my grandfather, could have been something completely random. You know, he's coming out of a meeting and somebody says, oh, by the way, I've heard about so-and-so. And if that meeting hadn't happened, that passing in the hallway, whatever, the call to my grandfather would not have been made and I would not be here talking to you now. Mm. Mm-hmm. Do you think astonishment is the same as other things like hope or anger or fear? Well, it's an emotion, but of course you can be astonished about something without being fearful of it or being angry. So all these different emotions have their own kind of feeling and their own kind of cognitive aspect associated with them. So astonishment is quite different from anger or joy for that matter, or happiness. So I would say people can be joyful about their lives, happy about their lives. But what I've emphasized in my essay is that people also separately ought to be utterly astonished that they exist, given the improbability of it ever having happened. Mm. Now, you've gone through a list, we might not get through them all, but of people who don't think their existence is very astonishing. You know, maybe, for example, because people say, well, okay, you know, my parents met by chance, you know, my father didn't go on the Titanic or whatever. I don't know why they met and it could have been a different sperm, a different egg, and I would have therefore been different maybe. But what are they? You call one the weary parent. What's the weary Mm -hmm. parent's response to all this? (laughs) 
Well, I'm imagining a child being told the facts of life, kind of like I was told by my father when I was merely seven years old. And he explained to me the number of sperm involved in human reproduction. And I was stunned to think that if any of those other sperm had made it to the egg first, I wouldn't exist. But I talk about the weary parent. You know, my father was not like this, but imagine a parent who's just saying, yeah, whatever, come on. I'm not going to go into the details, but you came about in the ordinary way for ordinary reasons. There's nothing astonishing there. Just calm down. Mm. Okay. Now, you describe this one as the no-nonsense naturalist. This is the person who says sorry to the kid, you know. Sorry, no choir of angels announced you're coming. Right. The no-nonsense naturalist is just somebody who tries to look at things in an objective perspective, and they would say that, look, everything that leads to a person's birth follows naturally from the laws of physics, biology, human social interaction, and so on. We may not know everything about all these laws and patterns, but there's nothing astonishing about why a person would be born. It's just part of these natural laws and patterns. Mm. Now, there's another one, the Leibnizian. What does he say? The Leibnizian, this is named after the philosopher G.W. Leibniz from the 17th century. And not only did he believe in God, but he believed that the properties traditionally attributed to God, being omnipotent, being all good, all knowing, entailed that this is the best of all possible worlds because God would not have created a lesser world since he wanted to create the best one. And the idea there regarding astonishment or pushing back against the idea of astonishment is that, well, he created every possible person, maybe not that now exists, but that will exist or that did exist. And so there's nothing astonishing because God will have created every possible person. Mm. Now, the cosmological physicist is a bit, you might imagine, well, once you mention cosmology, you think, wow, astonishing. <laughs> that person isn't astonished either, are they? No, at least I'm imagining a kind of cosmological physicist who takes some of the ideas of the actual physicist, Brian Greene, and runs with that regarding the idea that there's no need to be astonished. Brian Greene claims that physics itself tells us, and this is controversial, by the way, but he says physics itself tells us that there are an infinite number of universes and that each possible arrangement of particles necessarily repeats itself in these other universes. He calls it the quilted multiverse. And so the idea would be somebody who wants to push back against my claim that there's reason to be astonished would say, look, there's no reason to be astonished. Every possible individual exists in one of the universes within the overall quilted multiverse. And so why be astonished? This would be a way of trying to defend non-astonishment without appeal to God. Mm. I don't meet many people who have ever said to me that they're astonished at their existence. And I think that's because it's not astonishing that there are millions or billions of people on, right. on the globe, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about no. you and how you're put together, your that's right. indefinable uh, you can, self, if you like. Your indefinable, unique self, I would say even with regard to the supposed multiverse, the fact that there might be some molecular duplicate of you in some universe, you know, billions or trillions or quadrillions of light years away, still doesn't take away from the uniqueness of you. And if things had not happened in this one universe where you are, in just the way that produced you, then you wouldn't exist at all. And so there's still, it seems to me, room for astonishment. Mm. Now, Tim, one of the things you said that really made me go, <laughs> actually, now I think I do get what he's saying, was when you said that looking at your individual unique self, 
compared to all the other people on the globe. But you actually mm-hmm. say, look, the data set of seven or eight billion existing humans is not what you compare yourself to and right. that you are unique amongst those. You think it's fair enough to say that it's not those who share this planet but all those who might have been born instead of you. So all those who might have existed is a, an incalculable number of people, isn't it, really? Yes, it's hard to imagine how many people or possible people we're talking about. I think one reason, you know, you mentioned that most people don't seem to go around feeling astonished that they exist, and that could well be because they look around at you and me and all the people on the city street, and they say, you know, well, I'm no different from any of them. What's to be astonished about here? Mm. But the point I want to make is that's the wrong set of possible or actual people to compare to. You can't just look at the people who actually exist. Everybody around you has won this same existence lottery. But think about the person who would have come to be, you know, if your parents had married at a slightly different date, or of course, if your parents had not met at all, and they had had children with other spouses than the ones they actually married. It seems to me reasonable to think, well, of course, there would be other people had things gone differently. They didn't go that way, but had they gone that way, these other individuals would have been born. These are what I call the possible people who don't actually come into existence. And those people, it seems to me, vastly, vastly outnumber the actual several billions of people that have lived on this planet. Mm. You make the point that perhaps we should cultivate this astonishment, not something we, you know, publicly go around blah, blah, blurring about, but we should acknowledge it about ourselves and encourage it in children. Mm -hmm. And if we all did that, we might have a better appreciation of the world at large. And that to me is a pretty simple, clear and cogent argument for recognising and being astonished at your individual unique self. I think it's great. That's the end point of what you want to say, isn't it? Yeah. Again, I think that what I want to really emphasise in my essay is that there's some reason in support of this emotion of astonishment. You know, again, with emotions, sometimes your emotion of anger can be unreasonable. Sometimes it can be reasonable. And some people think there's no reason to be astonished. And in my essay, I try to push back against those critics of astonishment and say, it's reasonable to feel astonished about your individual existence. And if it's reasonable, let's cultivate it in children because it expands the wonder that we feel about being alive. Again, I don't deny other reasons for being astonished. You know, just as we can look up at the stars on a clear night and we're astonished at the vastness of the universe, I think we can also be astonished at something having to do with our own individual selves. And I think Mm. each of us can be just as astonished that we came into existence and find ourselves here and able to appreciate all the other astonishing things about our universe. Children, I think, will start out by taking their existence for granted because, of course, I'm here. Why not? But they also have the ability to reflect on philosophical issues. They have a sense of wonder. And I think that if we can encourage children to direct their wonder not just to the stars above, and that's wonderful enough, but also individually to who you are and the vast probabilities ahead of your birth that you would never have existed in the first place, yet here you are, that, it seems to me, creates another very valuable kind of astonishment. Mm, Indeed it does. And if you have that astonishment at the person next to you and each person you meet, you might have a better understanding of humanity. Tim Triplett, thanks very much for joining us on CounterPoint today. Well, thank you very much. 
Yes, you are magnificent. Trashy media, however, hmm, not so much. Mmm, trashy media. Do you love it? I don't mind watching a bit of what I call junk telly. It might be a crime drama. It has to be a reasonably good crime drama, but it doesn't do anything for me other than entertain. There are people, of course, who say that trashy media rots your brain. Well, I would argue, of course, that decent crime is not trashy media, but you get the argument. Does trashy media rot your brain? No doubt in your life you've heard various things will rot your brain. Now, is that true? And how far back does this notion of trashy stuff wrecking your brain go back? Well, to find the answer to that, we're going to talk to James Waddell. He's a writer, describes himself as an early modernist, and he's a PhD student at University College London, where he's investigating mind-wandering attention lapses and digression in early modern romance. And he joins us now from London. James Waddell, welcome to Counterpoint. Thank you very much for having me. Cheers. Now, do you binge watch any streaming programs? I'm more of a kind of like Twitter and Instagram person. So I think Mm -hmm. I'll endlessly, endlessly just scroll on Twitter or on my Instagram, just watching kind of like hundreds and hundreds of eight second long videos for like an hour and a half. So that's my vice probably, which is, I think, is even kind of lower down the scale of media than, than no, Netflix. No, I don't think it is. Admittedly, there's a lot of trash on Twitter, but you can see a lot of good things too. I mean, I do the same. I flick through Twitter and provided you've got the strength mentally to just bypass the rubbish and <laughs> click on the ones you want... That's what gets me, though, because I have this very convenient excuse of needing to go on Twitter for, you know, career reasons or to see what's happening in the news, whereas actually kind of nine tweets out of ten that I see are just like utter nonsense. So it gives me that kind of veneer of respectability, which is Ah, exactly what I don't need. Well, you're you're giving yourself what you call the highbrow aspect of Twitter, and you point out that highbrow and lowbrow come from the Victorian pseudoscience of phrenology, getting the idea that some things are, you know, pretty up a crust for your brain and others aren't. So where do you start this idea that trash can ruin your brain? So despite the fact that it's a very contemporary phenomenon, you know, the types of media that we've just been talking about have Mm. all only been around quite recently, you know, Netflix, Twitter, Instagram and so on. But I think what I argue is that actually this idea that cultural products that you consume and your brain are kind of tangled up or enmeshed in some way Mm. actually has a much, much longer history. You know, even going back to the period that I focus on in my research, which is the sort of 16th and 17th centuries, you know, we're talking about the idea of brain rot. And I wanted to see how far back that sort of particular image went. And I found a bit of writing from 1603. It's a poem, actually, by Thomas Green, who talks about these kind of hack writers who are writing for mass print at the time. And he says, they bring unsavory writings to the press to dull the ears of men. And those men go on to suffer swellings of their rotten brain. So it's this idea that if you consume these sort of unsavory materials, then that can actually have quite a sort of direct putrefying effect on the brain itself. At the time, even at that stage in its history, the printing press, as opposed to manuscript writing, like so handwriting, still had this association with kind of mass market, sort of entertaining, maybe less kind of high quality literature. We still had what they call um, the stigma of print. So it's this idea that if you're reading that kind of stuff, then you risk this rotten brain that he talks about. Mm. I wonder if it's that easy or if, in fact, what people are saying is you become, well, is it inured to it? For example, if you want to watch a lot of violence on television, you're not as Mm. appalled to see a punch-up in the street because you think, oh, well, people do that. I see a lot of that on TV. Whereas if you don't Mm. see a lot of it on TV, you think it's an extremely violent incident. Do you think there's a degree Mm. to which trash TV, now, for example, I would think The Bachelor, Married at First Sight, these types of programs, (laughs) but are they simply reflecting what's out there Or are they encouraging us to behave like that? Is our brain absorbing it and saying that's okay? 
or do we have the capacity, the control of ourselves, the autonomy to say, well, this might be out there, but I don't like it? Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question because certainly historically the idea that the cultural products you consume, you know, the literature you consume yeah. could influence you to become kind of violent or could influence you to become a sort of like copycat of, you know, sexual morality that you're reading about or whatever was very much connected to the idea that literature really got up in your mind and really was able to kind of like seep in almost like physically to your brain. Yeah. You know, it's all kind of part of the same phenomenon for them because the emotional response that people had to literature was very powerfully material and literal because it operated upon you through what they call the passions. So the passions are these kind of very much sort of physical, internal forces. There's a historian of the emotions and a historian of, of the passions who says that they operate on the body like a kind of strong wind or a kind of storm or something like that. So depending on the sort of thing that you were consuming, you could have a kind of awakening of the passions towards sort of like anger and kind of heat and collar that could cause you to be violent and that could create sort of like copycat violence. That was something mm -hmm. that was very much like a concern is that people would hear stories of, you know, sword fights and so on, and that would kind of heat their blood until they felt tempted to do the same thing themselves, which again, you know, the idea that violent video games and so on create a kind of copycat impulse is very much a 21st century trope as well. But also in terms of the more, you know, what I think you're characterizing as the more sort of harmless kind of trashy stuff, you know, The Bachelor and all that kind of thing, that's just sort of light and frivolous. I think they felt that there was a sense of like latent threat with the equivalent of that sort of thing as well. Because if you were a sort of impressionable, giddy female reader of kind of trashy romance narrative, you know, vernacular romance narrative, then you might get so carried away that actually you start to think of yourself as a kind of protagonist in a romance and start kind of running off and having romantic dalliances and all this sort of thing. So, yeah, the idea of like copycat behavior, both in terms of like, serious violence and in terms of just being a bit kind of like frivolous and sexually immoral was definitely a concern. Yeah. Yeah. Although, you know, we speak in that way about women who might watch The Bachelor. I'd say the same mm -hmm. about men. They might think of being a dimbo is a good idea. Do you know what a dimbo is? It's a deliciously inviting <laughs> yeah. male, brackets, brains, optional. And, you know, yeah. I don't want young men growing up thinking that so long as they look good, brains are optional because they're not. Yes. <laughs> it's a bad thing. In any event, it's a long-term thing, hasn't it? It's always with us. Yes. That you know, you've got to watch what you I, read and watch what you look at because it might infect your brain. Exactly, yes. And, I mean, you're right to say that there's a completely gendered aspect to this as well. I mean, when I say only modern romances, I'm not talking about romances so much in terms of how we think of them today, like romance novels. I'm more thinking of these kind of very old, long narratives that involve princesses and princes and knights and kind of courtly chivalric romance and so on. But there very much was a sense that men, because they were perceived as more kind of like rational and more in control of their passions, they were able to sensibly read these romances and extract kind of moral nutrition from them. You know, maybe they read them as kind of like Christian <laughs> The men who allegories. are biffing each other on the streets outside exactly. pubs, killing each other in <laughs> yeah. robberies, can control their emotions when they're reading a romance novel. I love it. It's exactly. just fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Whereas it was much more dangerous for women to have access to this kind of stuff, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so now what have you concluded from all this? Is it unsafe to let the world at large look at pornography at large? Should we, as we do, for example, restrict movies with sexual violence in them? I know women certainly don't mind movies with explicit sex, but there's a, not such an attraction to sex with violence. Mm. Should we be banning those things because they affect us, they give people bad ideas? Well, I think... You know, public policy decisions like that should always be motivated by 
evidence, right? And I think what's so interesting about this area is that different bits of evidence point in very, very different directions. So there was one big famous study by uh, Italian economists in 2019 Mm. that did a big trial involving children who were raised in areas of Italy that had better access to Mediaset, which you may have heard of. It's the TV network, which was owned by Silvio Berlusconi, which was famous for these kind of completely, you know, dribbling, salacious game shows and all this kind of stuff. And the study found that they ended up with lower general intelligence scores as adults and also were more likely to vote for populist politicians. And this was picked up in the media quite widely and also quite uncritically, you know, because it recapitulated this very familiar narrative even that we've had for hundreds of years of the idea that your brain is kind of stupefied by this like garbage that it's consuming. There's also been lots of experiments using MRI brain scans, which you can use to track the flow of blood to different areas of the brain and try and find out about cognitive activity that way. But also there's been journalists who have written articles about hopping into MRI scanners and then watching The Bachelor, in fact, and kind of trying to see what that does to the brain. So there's been a very wide range of experiments, yeah, with a lot of wide range of degrees of seriousness. But what's interesting is actually there's been quite a scattered set of results. For instance, the journalist who went into the the MRI scanner to watch The Bachelor said that the scanner had captured this kind of oxygen-rich blood going to like angry bits of her brain, as she put it. But other experiments have found that reality TV actually stimulates brain activity in areas associated with empathy. So because there's this really, really wide range of results, for me, it's quite hard to escape the idea that actually these experiments are a kind of storytelling practice that end up reflecting our cultural priors, our kind of previously held cultural beliefs back at us. Definitely there's like a big public appetite for this narrative that the boundaries of the mind are somehow kind of porous or somehow kind of vulnerable to particular kinds of cultural product. I think for me, the jury's out at the moment and I wouldn't want to make any Mm. big swinging interventions just yet. (laughs) Great. Well, good job you're not a parliamentarian where someone says you've got to say yes or no to this bill. Now, (laughs) (laughs) that's a good job. Thanks very much for joining us on PowerPoint today. (laughs) Thanks very much. Cheers. Trashy media has been the rage for years now. I'll tell you what is also the rage, diversity. Diversity is all in the news these days, and so are diverse viewpoints. Sadly, in our town square, if we can call it that, instead of a civil discourse, we have yelling across the town square, I'm right, you're wrong. Well, what is it about diverse viewpoints? Can both people be right at the same time? This is the business of, this is my truth, my perspective, really. But isn't there just one truth? Well, let's talk to someone who's thought about this more than I have. Justin McBrayer is Professor of Philosophy at the Fort Lewis College in Durango, Colorado. He's recently written a book, Beyond Fake News, and he joins us now from the United States. Justin McBrayer, welcome to Counterpoint. Hi, Amanda. Happy to be with you. Justin, why do you think people keep saying, well, there's no one truth anymore, there's all these different views and we have to be respectful and compassionate and understanding about other people's views without thinking that they might be having different views about one thing that does exist? Yeah, so I think people are rightly concerned about matters of diversity, and they think diversity is important. I think what's confusing is the background story about why diversity is important. Some people seem to think that it's important just by itself or intrinsically valuable. And it's not. It's valuable for what it gets you. And one thing it gets you is information. But information doesn't make sense unless there's a world to have information about. So I think people are right to think that diversity is important. 
They just need to think more about why it's important and what role it plays in our social lives. I don't have it in front of me, but you did mention in the article that if you've got one little piece of information, not all the surrounding information, you don't know enough and you might not know enough about that one piece because you can't see where it's sitting. And diversity gives us that. You give me your one piece, I give you my one piece, other people in the street give us their one piece, they overlap a bit and we start to see a better picture. Isn't that the real value of diversity of opinion? That's right. So diversity might be valuable for social reasons. It might be valuable for emotional reasons or what have you. But the intellectual value of diversity comes from the fact that it gives us a more robust picture of the world that we live in. So just think of a scientific study. One study gives you a little bit of evidence for something. Two studies gives Mm -hmm. you all the more. So, for example, if you were trying to figure out whether your local pond is acidic, if you take a sample from one side of the pond, that gives you a little bit of information. But if you can take a diversity of samples from all over the pond, that's going to give you a more robust picture of what the world is like. Mm, That's true. Now, what about the people who say there is no one truth? I think those people are deeply confused. So I think, to be fair to them... What they're trying to say is that people see the world differently, and they're exactly right about that. The world that you have constructed in your head, Amanda, looks different than the world that I've constructed in my head. So our maps, if you want to put it that way, look different. You might think that climate change is caused by human pollution, and I may not, and so forth. So the maps of our world are different. But that doesn't mean that the world itself is different. It means that our perspectives on the world are different. If you think Mm. that the worlds themselves are different too, you're committing a kind of confusion that really belies your attempt to figure out what the world is like. If you and I are not part of the same world, how could we even have this conversation? Yeah, sure. I look at it a bit like looking at a skyscraper and I'm looking in on the, say, 20th floor and you're looking in on the 6th floor and you see different things to the things that I see but they are all a part of the same thing. And it's only if I listen to you that I might realise there is another floor to this thing. Stand back a bit. And, of course, if we listen to other people looking in at other floors, we'll sort of get the idea, really, and that might, might be helpful. Yeah, or at least improve your view of what's going on when you recognise that there's a view from another floor. So I think that's a perfectly helpful analogy to what's going on. Just to contrast that then with the more radical view... You know, some people, they're sometimes called in philosophy postmodernist. People think that there's just perspectives and there's no truth. That's like having the skyscraper with no view. There's no park out there that you're all looking at. If that's what our perspectives come down to, just a viewpoint with nothing that we're looking at jointly, well, now I don't see why we even have a reason to listen to other people. It's not as if they can give us information about the world. They're just giving us their view on nothing, and it's no more or less right than your own. Mm. You make the comment about marginalised people having privileged access to truths or the idea of that, truths about the world. In a sense, these people are saying that they've got privileged access to truths that other people don't have. Great. So think back to your skyscraper analogy. Mm. Suppose we want to know what's happening in the park and we only ask people on the 50th floor what's happening in the park. Well, they'll be able to give you a kind of high-level overview from what they can see from the 50th floor, but it's not going to be nearly as accurate as people who are on the second floor of the skyscraper, people who are much closer to what's going Mm. on on the ground. And so that's just a perfect illustration of this idea that people's position in the skyscraper will give them better or less information about what's happening on the ground. Mm. One of the interesting points that you raise in the article is questioning why one group's views on anything should be given more weight than another. When I was in Parliament years ago, people would say, because I'm a female member of Parliament, what do women think? I used to say, well, actually, they don't all agree. I don't know why people think this, that men will think this, women will think that. Equally, that people of one colour or another will think in a particular way. We all think differently. And it's a big mistake for people to say that that group's perspective is better than another, isn't it? Well, I think what you said is sensible and often true, but sometimes not. 
So take, for example, a kind of social inequity that applies largely to members of one demographic group. And it's also largely true that members of another demographic group don't experience that. So take a kind of racism. My students sometimes Mm -hmm. talk about the boundaries of free speech and whether certain kind of speech is harmful. Well, I do think that that's a perfect illustration of when diversity matters and can key in on key truths. If we have a diversity of racial or gender students in a classroom, then it's often interesting to hear their own perspectives on what it's like to hear different kinds of insensitive language. And I think it's very hard to figure out whether those kind of things are offensive or harmful without having a wide variety of voices there at the table. No, look, that's exactly right. I remember recently working with a number of people, including some First Nation people in Australia, and we were discussing about whether Australia is generally racist. Now, I think we all agree that it's generally not, but there are some people who are. And there are some people who appear maybe standoffish because they actually haven't met an Indigenous Australian. They're not sure what conversation they might want to have. They don't want to say the wrong thing. So they appear standoffish. And their standoffishness comes over to the Indigenous person. There's a bit, I'm not going to talk to you. And so the Indigenous person looks a bit maybe not hostile but, you know, distant. And those two views play on each other and all of a sudden you've got each one saying the other doesn't like them. Yet at the same time you can talk to an Indigenous Australian who will tell you that they've been at a taxi rank and the taxi's driven off, just won't take them. So there are all different views within Indigenous Australia and within Australians generally about whether we're racist. Is that the same in the United States? Very much so. And I think the point about the intellectual value of diversity is that when you're trying to get to the bottom of those kind of prickly social issues, you better make sure you have a variety of voices at the table. As you know right now, the United States is wrestling with issues about the legal boundaries of abortion, given the potential that our Supreme Court will overturn some of the longstanding protections for abortions in the United States. Well, look, if we're going to have that conversation, there better be a lot of different people at that table. There better be men and there better be women and there better be individuals from communities of color that have a stake in this debate. So the idea that I'm developing is this idea that diversity isn't an end in itself. Diversity is instrumentally valuable. It's good. But what makes it good is it gives us a more complete and robust picture of the world. Well, Justin McBrayer, I think you should be running the world. You've got a very sensible view. I think you and I, with a (laughs) bottle of red on a Sunday afternoon could fix the world's ills. Thank you very much for joining us today on CounterPoint. Delightful. Thanks for having me. Oh, the rat. Look, this seems a minor thing, but I think sometimes a minor thing can give you an indication of a much broader perspective on someone. So when someone is a bit mean at a dinner party to someone else, you get an idea that there's a bit of meanness in there and you can watch. Little things can tell us a lot. Well, I'm a bit worried about all of us because if you've ever tried to park in a suburban street outside a little cafe or something, you'll often find that some idiot has left a metre and a half in front of their car before the parking area stops. Not big enough for another car, big enough for them to drive out easily though, and so on it goes down the line. And if you add up four or five cars, you'll realise that really if they'd all parked properly, two or three more cars could have fitted into that space. Now it seems like nothing I know, But what does that tell us about ourselves? We go around our lives, we find a part, we just pull in conveniently, shut the door, lock the car, go into the cafe. We don't actually think in the simple little thing like parking a car, can I leave space for others? Is this a fair way for me to park? You know, you don't have to do a human rights lecture every time you park the car. But if in your daily life, in every little thing you do, you only think about yourself, well, 
there's not much hope. Oh, well, we can be selfish, can't we? We can be terrible people. We are, in fact, animals. We might be better than most other animals, but we are animals. When we talk about humans, we're usually doing it in a way to distinguish ourselves from animals. But in fact, we really mean lesser animals because we are animals. Now, human exceptionalism says that we are the best. We're better than any of them. I've not been sure of that for a long time. As you know, I think that if a little bird can fly from Canada down to South America, weighs only a pound, it doesn't use navigation, doesn't stop for food and drink, and it gets all down there on its own without landing, they've got something that we haven't got. Anyway, human exceptionalism needs to be questioned, and we're talking to someone now who's just the person to do that. His name's Jeff Sebo. He's a clinical associate professor at New York University. And he's written an article in Aeon magazine called Against Human Exceptionalism. And he joins us now from the United States. Jeff Sebo, welcome to CounterPoint. Thank you so much for having me. It's a nice photograph at the top of your article. Someone on a Jeep or something, Land Rover, looking out with binoculars to find animals. And there's a sign that says, elephants have right of way. There's a real problem for animals with human activity stopping their path of normal migration around and giving them right away, good on them. But that's not what you're talking about. Now, if someone said to you, you've got three sentences to tell me what you think about human exceptionalism, what would you say? (laughs) Well, human exceptionalism is the view that we matter more than animals. And I think it makes sense to create some hierarchies because different animals are capable of different experiences and that matters. But We think we matter too much, and we think they matter too little, and we need to even the scales just enough so that we can treat them with respect and compassion, and that is what my article is about. Excellent. How could we even the scales? I mean, let's go to a couple of the examples you use in your article, which would Mm -hmm. encourage people to see that there are values, and they might not share them, but use the example, if I could save a pig from terrible injury... But I had to choose between that and saving my neighbour from a very minor injury, which Mm -hmm. would I do? Now, what are you trying to tell us by that? Well, these kinds of thought experiments put pressure on our idea that we take for granted that if human and non-human interests conflict, then the human interests always win. We think humans are rational, humans have language and reason, humans are capable of intense happiness and suffering. And for those reasons, if our big human interests conflict with the interests of a pig or another animal, then ours clearly win. And the point of these examples is to remind us that sometimes human interests are trivial, not that important, and non-human interests might be extremely important for them. And so in a situation where I have a hangnail or I have an itch (laughs) and another animal is fighting for their life, then maybe in that situation, their interest actually trumps mine and we should prioritize their well-being over mine, preventing them from suffering and dying instead of preventing me from having a hangnail or, or having an itch. And once you accept that sometimes their interest can trump ours, then you have to ask the question, okay, When does that happen and how can we tell? And then that gets really tricky to figure out. Mm, Okay. One of the things you raised in the introduction to this piece mentioned about the little birds that can go from Canada down to South America in one go. You know, they don't have navigation and all that sort of stuff. We couldn't do that at all. But you mentioned, for example, that elephants have three times as many neurons as humans. What's that mean? What in, practice, <laughs> well, what in practice does that mean? Well, nobody knows exactly what it means yet because the study of animal minds is still in a very, very early phase, which itself reflects our lack of curiosity about them. But yeah, in general, animals are capable of so much more than we think. So many animals, so many species are capable of learning and memory and communication and social awareness and self-awareness and pain and pleasure and emotions and decision-making. And bird navigation is a great example of that. Animals can detect often so much more than we can about the environment. They can orient themselves. They can navigate the world better than humans can. And elephants, as you said, African elephants, have three times the number of neurons as humans and comparable lifespans. And the reason that might matter 
is some people think that how complex your brain is and how many neurons it has might have something to do with how intense your experiences can be. So if I have many more neurons, a much more complex brain than a worm, then my happiness and suffering can be more intense than theirs can be, which is part of why I should be prioritized. But if you think that, okay, fair enough, but then maybe that means an African elephant's happiness and suffering can potentially be three times as intense as yours. And so if that is why you can take priority over a worm, then by that reasoning, maybe an African elephant should take priority over you, all else being equal. Mm. And we do see constantly stories about elephants having, we might be anthropomorphizing a bit, I know, but very much a collective attitude to life. The herd looks after Mm -hmm. each other. The family unit's quite strong. They're not just great big grey animals go tromping around continents like Africa. Right, right. They're much more than that, aren't they? They absolutely are. Elephants are incredibly intelligent and social, as you say. They spend time with each other. They spend lives with each other. They mourn their dead. They sometimes show evidence of having a concept of death. And yet we do sometimes, as we do with all animals, simplify them. We think of them as mere animals behaving according to instinct rather than really complex subjects of experience with rich interior lives. And that leads us to do all kinds of harmful things to them. Of course, we hunt and poach wild elephants. We keep elephants in captivity. Today, in fact, the New York Court of Appeals, first time ever in the history of the English-speaking world, the highest court in a jurisdiction heard a case about non-human rights, and that was about a captive elephant being held in the Bronx Zoo and some lawyers who are seeking habeas corpus relief for that elephant. So people are starting to appreciate that elephants in particular and animals in general are complex beings with complex needs and are starting to ask tough questions about what that means for their rights. But right now we still treat them as objects and we still mostly harm them or ignore them, which needs to change. Mm. Well, we look at a number of things in animals and say we're better than these things, Mm -hmm. like having some agency. I'm not sure that that's limited to us. Welfare, and again, the elephants are a great example of a group of animals that do understand about each other's needs and how to protect each other and, you know, share a bit of mm-hmm. welfare activity. Where do we go with this? How do we say to ourselves, now, hold on, we're not the be-all and end-all. Is it just a matter of recognising that we should give all animals some respect? I think that is a really good starting point because right now the status quo is so bad that even that would count as major progress. Because right now, as I said, we really do treat animals and there are so many animals out there we treat this way as objects, property, commodities and kill, you know, 100 plus billion per year in our food system and many more wild animals for food, clothing, other purposes, even when we have access to alternatives. So even treating them as though they matter a little bit would still count as a major improvement. But I think where we need to ultimately be going is a society where we apply our principles of fairness and justice and equality across species and try to really equally consider the interests of everybody affected by our behavior when making decisions that affect them. And that means really reimagining our communities, not as human communities where animals sometimes enter, but as multi-species communities that humans are governing on behalf of all of the animals who live here. And that really requires an expansive way of thinking about ethics and politics. So ultimately, I think we need to go in that direction. Jeff, intuitively, I'm inclined to agree, but a dark memory from the past has come back to me. It's called the orange-bellied parrot. There was a wind farm going to be put up somewhere and the poor person who had the responsibility for agreeing or not agreeing at the federal level in Australia had to deal with this because the orange-bellied parrot was at risk and still is, incidentally. How do you weigh that sort of thing up? You know, okay, orange-bellied parrots are beautiful. They really are beautiful little birds. But you're talking about energy supplies, clean energy supplies to thousands of people. How do you weigh that up? Yeah, Yeah, I think the the first step is to acknowledge that that is a genuine trade-off because obviously we do have energy needs and that involves converting to a greener energy system. And also there are lots of humans and other animals who will be affected by that conversion to a greener energy system. And so we have to weigh all those considerations carefully and then make a decision about what to do. So when I say that I think that we should treat animals with respect and compassion, I am not saying that we should never harm them or kill them. Sometimes we might 
have to harm them or kill them because we have no completely harm-free option available to us. But what I am saying is we should consider their interests alongside everybody else's when deciding what to do and then do what is best for everyone overall. And sometimes that'll mean favoring the birds. And sometimes that'll mean favoring everyone else who can benefit from the green energy system. So we have no alternative but to really consider all of the stakeholders equitably and then make the best decision we can. Mm. It's an odd thing, isn't it, that when you're describing someone who's behaved badly, either they, you know, eat in a disgusting fashion or they've assaulted someone in a disgusting fashion, people might say, oh, he's an animal or he's a pig, as if that's a really bad thing. Well, pigs are very sensitive (laughs) animals, very sensitive animals. I used to have an interest in the pig industry at a distance. And I can assure you in the really hot weather, those piggeries that have cold water, like spray and showers to keep the pigs cool, have a higher pig survival rate. Pigs are very, very sensitive. I don't know why we're so nasty about animals. But that is an indication, isn't it, that we think we're so much better that it's an insult to call someone an animal when we are in fact animals ourselves. That is exactly right. And there are so many other examples where that came from. All kinds of cases where you can insult somebody by calling them an animal or a pig or a snake. But then also think about all of the other ways that we use language to distance ourselves from animals and to treat them as lesser than. As you said in the intro, we think of humans as distinct from animals instead of one species among many. And we use pronouns like he, she, or they to refer to fellow humans, but we use the word it to refer to other animals, which frames them as an object rather than a subject. And there are so many other examples where that came from. And, you know, language use matters because the language that we use structures the concepts that we create and the concepts that we create structures the way that we perceive the world and the way that we behave in the world. And so this language really reinforces the kind of speciesist attitudes and behaviors that we have towards other animals. Mm. Well, Jeff, I think more than looking at the great things we do, we should focus on some of the terrible things that humans do that animals don't do. And then that might make us rethink. But in any event, Jeff Sebo, thanks very much for joining us on CounterPoint. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And that's it for this week. Thanks for your company today. I look forward to talking with you next week. Until then, this is Amanda Vanstone saying ciao, ciao. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.